Right, we are live. Hello and welcome to series four of the Guns on Pegs podcast. My name is George Brown and I'm the editor at Guns on Pegs. As per usual, I'm joined by Chris Horn, Managing Director of Guns on Pegs. Chris, how's it going? Uh, quite a lot's happened since we last recorded the podcast. It has, George. Busy time of year, isn't it? Busy time of year, but but we've been shooting together. I think that's probably the highlight of the last few weeks, isn't it? Well, it was very nice, but before that, I've been shooting twice. How many times have you been? <laughs> Not that many. About six or something. <laughs> But yeah, we had we we had a really nice day together. Um, it was it was really interesting, actually. Just a real. We were in Hereford. We can't really say the name of the estate, uh, which is a shame. But I thought it was one of the nicest shoot days I've been on. It was one of those. I think it was really interesting. It's actually worth discussing quickly because there were two things about that shoot that I think were quite unique. Well, not unique, but they were quite different to normal shoots. Um, first of all, you walked between drives. It was an estate that allowed you to do that, didn't it? Um, yeah, and I just I've forgotten how lovely it is to walk between drives if you can. My God, your back hurts at the end of the day, but <laughs> it was really nice. Yeah, you definitely it? feel like you've put the yards in when you walk between drives. Um, but yeah, that was really nice. And then the other thing that was really interesting is, and I know that there's a few places that do it, but um, rather than drawing pegs, we were placed on our pegs according to how much shooting the shoot captain felt you had had over the course of the day. <laughs> It was and so it was really good. nice, wasn't it? Because you felt like I suppose it's it swings and roundabouts really, and you've got to be a brave shoot captain to do it, and to know that you're definitely not going to cock it up. But I think he did it brilliantly. I felt like everybody was in the action roughly yeah. the same amount. It was so funny how you, you get a little bit of sort of peacocking on the way to the next drive. Oh, look, look you know, sort of try and make yourself stand out. Look, look at me when he's sort of getting to the middle of the line. I'll, I'll obviously go here. Yeah, pick me, pick me. <laughs> oh, um, no, I was really out of it in the last drive, really out of it. Yeah, I haven't know, seen a bird in a couple of cartridges. Yeah, um, he, was, he, he was actually telling me on one of the drives how it's gone wrong in the past uh, once or twice. But he, he had a day where a guest of the guy who'd taken the day, which made this even more odd, complained and literally lost his rag about being put where he was put and he just said that's absolutely fine you're absolutely not coming here again not at all never (laughs) Um, amazing yeah it's quite a nice position to be in isn't it a lovely shoot though really good day yeah absolutely my kind of a place it was my kind of shoot just so nice not not extreme birds really lovely birds on some of the drives just a a different it just it was all about the feel of the shoot though isn't it it's about what the, the atmosphere the host creates the estate you're on, just the, the calmness of the day. That's what makes a day really fun. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. And a really nice crew as well uh, yeah. for the day, which was great. But Chris, I think that's enough uh, reminiscing. Um, so would you like to introduce our first guest of the series? I will. Series four, first guest. Hey, no pressure. Uh, right, so uh, our guest today, he, he we were actually, when we were, when we were just discussing what we might ask our guest, we realised he is a real all-round sportsman. Uh, he was shooting campaign manager for uh, the Countryside Alliance. Um, he is now head of Fishpow. Um, he has written articles on stalking for Guns on Pegs. So we've got shooting, fishing, stalking. We're going to find out what else is in there. Um, he's a top chap, most importantly, and he's much liked by everyone in the office, which is why he is first choice for Series 4. Uh, massive warm welcome to Sam Carlyle. Thank you very much, Chris. It's, a, it's, it's an honour to be included in, in such illustrious company. 
yeah it's really great to have you with us sam really good to have you with us yeah an absolute you, absolute pleasure what do you reckon re- a real all-round sportsman then uh, I, I think that's an allusion to my um, portly figure, most most of all, really. <laughs> the, um, I've, I've, I've worked kind of quite hard to refine it, relentlessly pursuing good food over many years. And so um, I'm glad that that's been noted by everyone. <laughs> <laughs> that's the definition of a proper sportsman then, your shape. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, if you look at those great Georgian uh, portraits and late, early Victorian portraits of, of wonderful sportsmen, there wasn't a slight man amongst them. <laughs> That's very true. Very true. <laughs> and of course, with great food, how about this for a segue? With great food, you have to have great drinks. So Sam, what's that you're drinking? <laughs> so I I have a um, enjoyable drink that I think brings in the kind of late autumn season when you get to the thick of sport. Uh, and it's the the Damson Gin Negroni. Um, so that's, a, wow. that's my kind of tipple for this particular time. Uh, the I've been fortunate enough to grow up on a family farm in Suffolk and there's a restaurant there which has helped me become the um, round sportsman that Chris alluded to <laughs> earlier and it's one of the cocktails that we we started serving recently there it goes incredibly well with game gets you in the mood for um, a, a kind of festive night ahead and it's it's pretty lovely particularly if you've made the effort to make your own damson gin yeah so what apart from damson gin I, I'm a bit ignorant on cocktail making what else goes in the Negroni uh, it's Campari and sweet vermouth, and then typically just standard gin with a with an orange peel in there. Um, but this one's it just replaces the, the 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 standard gin with a damson gin. So it, it kind of, I think a Negroni. I mean, it's a, there's always a good reason to have a Negroni. They're absolutely delicious. Um, but the kind of summertime the standard Negroni is is a good refreshing drink. And then as soon as uh, the clocks go back swap out the normal gin for damson gin and you're on to a winner and the damsons are from from the farm yeah the damsons are from the farm i'm actually very lazy at at picking them but the um i'm kind of forced into it by my wife who's very keen on making sure that we we harvest all of the kind of natural bounty so uh just the other week i was out picking this year's uh crop but this is obviously a previous vintage very nice i my dad uh for years and years and years, kept the the location of the damson tree on the farm a closely guarded secret. But this year, somehow, I managed to persuade him to tell me where it is. Um, and it's what he hadn't said is it's not just one tree; it's about thirty yards of hedgerow, where it's all self seeded. Obviously, the birds have sat on the tree and gorged themselves and crapped away over the years. And there's just damsons all over. And obviously, damsons are a bit a bit foxy. Some years you get none, but this year. The, this 30 yards of hedge was just purple with them. Uh, so I've picked a decent stash. I'm quite looking forward to making some soon. No, they're an, they're an excellent fruit and um, and you can do all sorts of stuff with them. But the, the you know, a, infusion into some kind of liqueur is a, is a pretty good way to go. Yeah, absolutely. Chris, what have you got? Uh, <clears throat> not quite as cool as Sam, but uh, similar uh, theory actually behind it. So I've gone with a drink I've had before which is a slow gin and tonic. Uh, but the reason I've gone with it is because I'm getting more and more addicted to these. And for the same reason Sam just mentioned, when the clocks go back, you know, gin and tonic, lovely fresh summer drink, chuck slow gin in it and obviously double the quantity. 
uh, and I'm really getting hooked on these. But the reason I have slow gin and tonic this week, there is a reason. It's not just having the same drink again. Uh, Tim Crump, who came on our uh, from Oakwrights, who came on our awesome episode where we got very car- carried away building the ultimate shoot lodge. Uh, he very kindly, off the back of that, sent me a, a little bottle of his handmade slow gin. But it's got he, it's one of those handmade slow gins where he's gone and got professional labels done for his own bottles. So it came through. It came through, and it just looks very fancy. Uh, but then on the oh, back, yeah, look it, at that. On the back, it's got a due to the handmade nature of this item, it's not suitable for those with allergies. Uh, just Striking. covering covering his back there. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, very much a handmade slow gin from Tim. So thank you very much, Tim, if you're listening. Uh, slow gin and tonic. Brilliant, George. What have you got? Well, it wouldn't be a podcast if I wasn't drinking whiskey, would it? No. Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, so, um, it was my second wedding anniversary, uh, last week and my wife, hang on, was it last week? No, this week. Um, and, uh, my wife very kindly gave me a nice bottle of, uh, single malt scotch, uh, Speyside single malt as per usual. Um, so yeah, I've got a, a nice big glass of that to keep me through, keep me going through. Is it as big as the glass that we gave you at about one in the morning before that shoot day. <laughs> well, it wasn't so much the size of the glass as the number of glasses that was the real problem. I think there were about four, and I felt pretty dreadful the next morning, and I hold you entirely responsible for my poor shooting. <laughs> I don't know who ordered really peaty whiskies, but I'm not a fan of peaty whiskies, so it was always going to end up your way, that one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. Right, chaps, uh, to business. <clears throat> Sam, the next segment is the segment we call Whose Bird Is It Anyway? And it's when we ask our listeners to send in their shooting quandaries, queries and dilemmas. Um, and for the first episode of the of the series, we've got a bit of a special one. Usually these come from guns, uh, but today's comes from a sporting agent who shall remain nameless. Let's call them Cosmo. Uh, he writes... A team of guns booked a day of 250 birds on a shoot that offers partridges of varying heights. Upon booking, we were told that it was a strong team of guns and that they hoped the birds were good and tall. The shoot day arrived and a gentle breeze meant that the birds were flying at all heights. I stood behind the guns, ready to observe what was promised to be a shooting masterclass. (laughs) I watched the first small covey break from the bracken bank high up and expected to see the guns mounted and ready to unleash hell. Well, half the covey cleared the guns before a shot was fired, despite plenty of view of the incoming birds. Imagine my disbelief when, after the first shots were fired, I was yet to see a bird fall, and this continued shot after shot. The partridges continued unscathed. Despite more than enough partridges, which most people would be delighted to shoot at, and were very shootable, the guns continued to wait for stratospheric birds, which, to their bemusement, they missed. We shot two drives and had the usual 11s, and whilst pouring drinks, I could not help but listen to the conversation and the bragging about how many each gun had shot on each drive. I'm not sure if they actually believed it or if egos were playing a part. So after a little libation, I hoped to see a better performance. Alas, the disappointment continued until lunchtime and the bag was less than half of what it should have been, although they'd fired more than enough cartridges to reach the desired bag level. So the dilemma is, they obviously bigged themselves up and therefore felt obliged to shoot beyond their abilities. 
So should I have approached the team and told them that they were not as good as they thought they were and they should have been shooting the lower birds or let them continue deluded and deal with the aftermath of not reaching the bag at the end of the day? Clearly egos were in play and I didn't want to lose them as a client. <laughs> oh, Sam, I'm handing over to you first. <laughs> That's a difficult, <laughs> difficult quandary. Uh, thank God I'm not a sporting agent. and, and That was what I was thinking here, as well. <laughs> Yeah. As we've got one here um, of sorts, I thought I thought it would be a good question for you to answer, Chris. But I mean, of of sorts, um, I that is a very very tough quandary. I mean, I think let them miss; they're never going to learn. Let them miss. I think as long as they're having fun um, would be my would be my uh, view. I, I'm a bit confused. I liked the man in Hereford you mentioned earlier who said you know, they never had to come again. I think that's a, a, a better attitude to have. If they continually miss and are grumpy, you shouldn't you shouldn't have to let, make them come again. Um, it's, a da- it's a dangerous one, isn't it? Because he's a sporting agent, so he needs to look after his business because these are sort of clients mm. of his. So you, you sort of err on being super polite, but then got to say enough to manage expectations. Because obviously the issue here is that they get to the end of the day, they've shot half the bag they wanted to, and they complain and what do you do i can see complaining if you've not had enough to shoot at but if you if you've had lots to shoot at but you can't hit what's there and you've turned down the stuff that you can hit then i don't feel like you've got much of a leg to stand on but you know i'd be terrible at customer service because my philosophy is that the customer is usually wrong That's like the worst sporting agent in the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the... I think they sound. I mean, presumably, if you've had enough shots, more than enough shots, I would have asked the the, the um, people organising the day to perhaps try and put a few more birds over them, to so that it was unequivocal that they should have shot double the bag, but they only got to to, to half of it with the number of shots or something like that. Then, um, if you've had enough shots, I don't think you can as George says, really complain. I think you're both being very polite. Um, I, I think if you get a team that asks for tall, high birds and then misses, I think you need to absolutely slaughter them. I think it's just totally, it's, it's totally unacceptable to say that, but it's very uncouth in the first place to even talk about it. Then to actually sort of set yourself up at a pedestal and fail in shooting is just... I think you should be torn apart. So I think actually the sporting agent could make a name for himself in a positive way where he has maybe like a rating chart in the gun bus. And if you go on a day with him after the first drive, you go back into the gun bus to see how the, how this person rated your performance. So what, like Strictly come dancing. Literally like, like Strictly. <laughs> and, and you're waiting for to be absolutely torn down by this sporting agent. I think people would take days with him just so they could hear what he said. I think if you had a leaderboard and it was on the season basis, like a kind of Premier League, you know, so you could see that the party that Chris Hornboard was, 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 you know, the, the one to beat. And so you hoped that your score was higher than that. I think that could actually be a real selling point because people can be pretty competitive about it, at least for me, of course. But um, the, the, I think that's a good start. But the important point is not about how many birds you shoot, because it never is in shooting, right? It's about having fun. So he's got to score it on the basis of everything around it. So if you if you turn up and you talk a big game and then you miss one bird at all, no matter how many you've had over you, that obviously puts you straight down to a low score. 
So yeah, I think it's about how you that, go about it. <laughs> and there's a bit that makes me a bit uncomfortable, which is this sort of bigging, bigging themselves up. It just feels a little bit un-British to, and not the, the act of a true sportsman say, yeah, we're really good at this. It's much more the thing to say, actually, I'm not really terribly good. I think I'm British. I call it twatish, George. <laughs> I would agree. With, I'd agree with you, Chris. We don't know. It could have been a foreign team, but but I I wouldn't want to presume. But the um, I think it's uh, you definitely definitely need to be taken down a peg or two. But I certainly the last thing I would want to see happen is to for the last couple of drives to be kind of flattering and easier drives, uh, so that they did reach the bag target or something like that. That would be acquiescing to their to their kind of failure and their. Um, egos I think that would be a disaster I've been on a day where um, I was with a team of guns actually quite sharp it's just the birds were out of this world it just went incredibly well and the, and the shooter owner came up to me um, after the second drive and he's like look Chris we're not going to get anywhere near the bag Are you okay with that and I was like of course we are crack on do what you like <laughs> and and everyone's expectations are managed uh, we're just here for a good time no one's going to really notice uh, and I just think if you have that conversation You've got to get in there as a shoot owner or a sporting agent, I think. And I guess maybe we're being a bit uncharitable to, to this team of guns, right? Maybe they're not actually that fussed about the size of the bag. And actually, all they really want is four absolute belters per drive or, or one belter per drive. And they're happy to go home at that point. You know, that those fabled bathtub birds, maybe that's what they're after. I think that's pretty charitable. Um, they, <laughs> they, it says that the sporting agent is incredibly concerned about to lose sleep over the fact that this team of guns isn't going to make the bag but um, they, it sounds like a horrible team of guns they're incredibly pleased with their own abilities before they arrive then found wanting <laughs> and, and overly concerned that the bag number isn't going to be met despite everything else going on around them yes I think you're probably right Sam I think you're probably right I wouldn't have them back. Blacklist them. <laughs> George, can you let me know, please, who this was? Because I'm going to ring them and make sure he does a rating system. I really want to see this happen. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure that they know who they are. Um, but yes, I will let you know the name of the correspondent. Um, good, so, thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a good one. I enjoyed that. Um, so uh, on a similar vein, Chris, I think we've got an, an unpopular opinion as well. We do indeed, George. Um, so last time we had what I thought would be the most unpopular, unpopular opinion for a while. Um, I got really angry. Um, but uh, anyway, <laughs> this unpopular opinion comes from uh, someone George has named Theodore. I don't get to name these people. George names them for me. Uh, he writes, um, <clears throat> here's a talking point for you. A couple of seasons back, I was on a partridge day in Wales. A fantastic shoot day goes by and we end up in the pub for dinner. They serve game. Wonderful. One of the other guns pipes up. I don't care what happens to the birds. I just enjoy shooting them. <sighs> this, of course, raises some eyebrows. And being a bit of an ethical warrior, I took him up on it. And I insisted that he, at the very least, take a brace. And he did. I may have gone too far when I told him not only was his attitude distasteful for everyone on the day, that it was bad for the sport, for conservation, for wildlife, and that he probably shouldn't be shooting game at all. And at this point, he was quite red in the face. I hadn't mean to embarrass him, but I did feel pretty angry about his lack of ethics. Anyway, my question is, when we come across guns who have this attitude in the field, what is the best way to deal with it? 
<laughs> oh god <laughs> unleash the fury Sam over well, to you <laughs> <laughs> I think Theodore sounds like a legend I want to be his friend the, the, I think that's entirely right the absolutely entirely right I mean firstly that this man needs to kind of get his taste buds checked out if he doesn't like eating game um, and I think we need to we need to make sure that everyone who shoots is ideally served game on a shoot day but they they get to understand that it's an integral part of the entire process the it's it's i mean regardless of the ethics of it there's just so much joy to be had harvesting your own damsons and making a negroni harvesting your own meat and uh cooking it up in some way that's interesting there's an infinite amount of things to do with game i mean what a miserable miserly attitude of this chap <laughs> I completely agree with you, Sam. And we've talked about this before um, in various places and at various points in time. And, you know, it, it's I'd go a step further. It's not integral to the whole process. Is the point of the whole process, is it mm. not, is, is yeah. uh, to put food on the table. And I'm completely in agreement with Theodore that this guy shouldn't be shooting if he's not interested in taking the game home and eating it. I mean, I can understand that if you shoot a lot you can end up with a lot of pheasant in the freezer. But I still think that there's, well, I know that there's lots of fun things you can do with pheasants from the freezer in the summer. You can whack them on the barbecue and all that kind of stuff. There is no excuse as far as I'm concerned. Um, I don't know, Chris, what do you, how do you deal with somebody like this? I think Theodore was right, don't you? Absolutely. Uh, the last team of guns with twatish with a small t this guy's just a twat with a capital t um that's <clears throat> i'm not quite as eloquent as sam um <laughs> this uh i i mean you're absolutely right it's not integral it is the point um i just i mean i think he did very well actually to hold himself back if someone said that to me on a shoot day i'd lose my call instantly i just think fair enough you can think it maybe um if you you know maybe you're you know, a bit misplaced and you think this, but who on earth goes and says it on a day if that is genuinely the way they are? First of all, thankfully, there aren't many people and I very rarely come across this as an issue. So this is definitely uh, definitely an unpopular opinion, but it's also a very rare one. I must point that out. Um, but yeah, I, I'm surprised he actually didn't go any further because I probably would have done. But then again, he probably got it to the right level because he's probably thinking about it, this guy now. But I mean, I've seen it before. I've seen guns leave without taking a brace home. And typically, I think it's probably because they've already got a load or there's some logistical reason why they can't. I've also come across a few people who've maybe maybe comparatively new to shooting and just don't really know what to do with a brace of pheasants, don't really know how to handle them. That's fine, George. That's fine because we can teach you. This guy said, I don't care what happens. Uh, that's so a major issue. That is yeah. the major issue, is that he doesn't care. It's like, I mean, the I really think that... that he, and he clearly, by the sounds of it, shoots, shoots a fair deal. He's had time to kind of think about this opinion. Um, it's... I think he couldn't... He Theodore dealt with it, obviously, very well and very um, kind of fairly, much more diplomatically than I would have. Uh, but I think it's the lack of care that's the real concern. Obviously, we've got... To, if someone says, I'm not sure I really like the flavour of game... Um, and 
you might then cajole them and say, you know, how can I help you discover the true delights of it? There are lots of different ways to cook it. Do you like sausages? Get the pheasants made into sausages or something really um, popular with everyone or something. But yeah. the, the, the fact that it's just this lack of care and this, I don't know, this lack of responsibility that goes along with it is uh, the truly grating thing, I think. Yes, and a lot is spoken about in shooting around respect for the quarry and, you know, all the stuff about whether you wear a tie or not and all that kind of thing. Um, that's all well and good. But actually, the ultimate respect for quarry is making sure that you make full use of the the, the end product, isn't it? Totally, totally. So um, message Theodore, if you can, uh, and then just say, by the way, what's the name of this guy? Because we'll check if he's on the database and we'll delete him. There we go. <laughs> and tell him to keep up the good work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Theodore. Yeah, exactly. He gets a set of garters, though, so I think he needs well, to celebrate yeah, so that. Well, yeah, so Cosmo and Theodore and, of course, you, Sam, uh, are going to be the first uh, new members of the most noble order of the garters of the series, and you will shortly be in receipt of your uh, very own sets of the very desirable Guns on Pegs podcast shooting sock garters. Um, so if you too have got a shooting confession or a quandary or a query that you'd like us and our guests to help you with or an unpopular opinion and you want a set of garters, do drop us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com. Uh, and as if owning the garters themselves wasn't incentive enough, we're about to announce something that should galvanize you all into emailing us uh, immediately because, Chris, we have an important announcement. That is correct. <laughs> Uh, this is this is exciting. Um, podcast comes to life uh, version two. So the first time the podcast came to life, because it was started, don't forget, right at the start of lockdown. First time it came to life was the end of lockdown where we had a big party at the game fair. Uh, and basically some listeners at the game fair came up to us and said, you know what, we need to get together again. We need to do something for those that have got garters. Um, and so we had a bit of a chat and basically it came back. They wanted a shoot day. So we got thinking, we think, bloody hell, this is going to be difficult. How are we going to organise this? Please, everyone, you know, certainly not end up in the scenario that uh, the first chap in our, who's been <laughs> in anyway had. Anyway, um, we just put a couple of feelers out um, and a couple of people have come right up to the mark here. So Barney Stratton, who was a guest on Series 3, has the lovely shoot uh, Stockton. He's kind, he's basically said, look, I'll offer the Guns on Pegs podcast a day on the 31st of January. Uh, it will be a walk one, stand one day. Uh, the bag could be anywhere from nothing to something. <laughs> Managing expectations. Uh, but this is Barney we're talking about. And for those that listen to that episode, you know he runs a pretty tight ship. He runs a decent operation there. Uh, he lays on amazing days. And it's the end of the season. So wink, wink, basically. <laughs> um <laughs> It's going to be the whole Guns on Pegs team are going to be there uh, and some previous podcast guests who have garters. So we're putting this out. It's on a first come, first serve basis, limited places. It's open to order of the garters only. If you're not already a member, you can still get on the day. You've just got to send in an unpopular opinion or a whose bird is it anyway, along with your expression of interest of joining the day. Uh, we're going to be staying overnight. Uh, for those that know and listen to a few of these, you'll know that that's one of my favourite parts of the shoot. Uh, the night before, uh, we're going to be staying at the Lamb at Hinden. We're going to have dinner uh, and then shooting on the 31st. We have dinner and drinks 
And essentially, it's priced at £350 a gun. And that includes dinner and drinks the night before. Uh, I mean, I have to just caveat that to a certain point. I mean, we don't know how thirsty this team's going to be. Um, but anyway, and it well, includes... Judging, judging by the game fair party, very thirsty. <laughs> it did, well, yeah, absolutely. And it includes your shooting. Uh, you just got to obviously pay for your room. Um, so it's exceptionally priced uh, for what you're going to get. So there you go. Listeners, uh, we're looking forward to this. How many guns have we got, George? What one stand one day? Probably. Well, very- so I think I think what we've agreed with Barney is that we will stand 10 but there will obviously be two teams of 10. So yeah. the total team for the day will be 20 people. Um, and I don't quite know whether the, the 10 who aren't shooting will be loading or whether they'll be in the beating line or what, or if it'll just be total chaos. And um, and, and we're going to make this a sort of other halves, everyone welcome, proper end of season party, right? Uh, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that's what it is. <laughs> Done. Um, so... I'm super excited about that. And can I just say a massive thank you to those listeners that send in these ideas and then kind of make them happen? Because without those people, uh, yeah, we, we, we wouldn't get so carried away with some of the things that we've done in the past and will do in the future. Yeah, so um, we will be, over the next few episodes, we'll be uh, firming up who, which of the previous guests uh, from the podcast will be joining us on the day. Um, how are we going to organise that, Chris? Are we just going to, what are we going to do? Take bids or, from them or what? How's that going to work? <sighs> detail, George, detail. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a strong point. Um, <laughs> uh, great. Yeah, we'll, we'll let you know. Obviously, there's going to be, it's going to be a great lineup, and that's the most important thing. And 31st of January, what a day to shoot. Yeah, I mean, definitely a fantastic way to round off the season. I'm, re- I'm so excited about it. It's going to be great fun, I think. Right then. So, Sam, um, it's really lovely to have you on as our guest for this first episode. Um, but uh, you're probably one of the the people who sort of worked a bit more in the background. Um, so I, I thought it might be good for people to just understand a little bit about your life in the, the shooting, fishing, stalking world. Who were your teachers when you were younger? Who 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 were your influences? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think like a lot of us, my family, having the opportunity to grow up in the countryside and get up to all sorts of uh, mischief. I, um, From a young age, I think probably one of my biggest influences was actually Robin Hood. And um, he, he was a great archer, famously, and good at ambushing people. And as a young child, I would dress up as Robin Hood. And my parents, as I mentioned earlier, had this restaurant. And sometimes people would walk around with a drink before their meal and I would routinely ambush them and fire homemade arrows, which I'd sharpened to quite a lethal degree at them. And um, that instinct kind of developed. And as I matured, uh, the, the quarry changed slightly from our paying guests to, to feathered and furry and scaly things. But, but that was the real beginning, the, the kind of thrill uh, of the chase, I think. <laughs> Amazing. That is not the answer I was expecting. Right. <laughs> I think, you know, that, that hunting instinct, that ability um, to hunt is, I, 
firmly believe in the innate in all humans just waiting to kind of come out and and probably it was it was um that that was the early experience that that got me going with that instinct uh, obviously growing up in the countryside from a shooting family surrounded by um people who are interested in 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 wildlife and gamekeepers and very fortunately neither of my parents actually fish but they they had friends who did and uh so I, I got all of those influences, and it was just a, a matter of time, really, until I until until I was able to embrace them. I thought you were going to say surrounded by restaurant guests. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, that too, that too. That's what trying. really gets you going, you know. The, the, <laughs> no, the twenty pound salmon is nothing compared to a good restaurant guest at forty yards. <laughs> um, no, luckily, I never, I never managed to kind of wing a restaurant guest. That was, that was, that was. <laughs> It was a few close shaves and, and I did, I was the kind of subject of quite a few complaints as well to the manager. But <laughs> um, So your, your Insta bio um, says that you're a wine taster. Uh, that pricked my ears up because that's absolutely in my category. Is that, is it, is it really the case or is so I probably at this point need to explain a bit about um, where I live, this farm in Suffolk kind of small, small kind of arable estate. My mother is a is a slightly mad woman originally from Mississippi, and she arrived into this uh, classic English setting and decided over 30 years ago that she wanted to plant a vineyard. She was interested in food and wine. My father was quite the opposite. And uh, but he, he, he thought the early days of marriage, much like George, um, actually hadn't even celebrated his second anniversary at that stage. Early days of marriage, better go along with it. And... Um, so they took over this patch, about eight or nine acres, uh, and planted some some vines. And then, um, because it was all rather slapdash, about three years later, they had fifteen or sixteen thousand bottles and no outlets. They thought we'd better better start a restaurant to try and sell them, and it it kind of grew <laughs> like that. And now it's a and now it's a kind of fully fledged business. It has survived the the kind awesome. of bow and arrow wielding um guardsman <laughs> stage and, and it's now now slightly more welcoming to people who want to come and eat and drink that what's the wine like so it's pretty good i mean you're you're um living chris in a key part of the english wine world uh <laughs> south of london and where we are in east anglia is is probably the, the other major region um mm. principally because there's a kind of the chalk is very close to the surface and, and vines like chalky uh, to put their roots into chalk and they're pretty they're pretty good it's all um quite refreshing white wine still white wines and sparkling wine so they they work in cooler climates mm. uh, but it's it's pretty delicious i like drinking it anyway and your quality control basically yeah i do i do a bit of that it's an essential part of the job really <laughs> at least once a day to do a bit of quality control <laughs> Um, and a, another string to your bow. Um, you've been on TV recently, haven't you? I think I saw that. Oh gosh, yes. I, <laughs> I, I, that's rather embarrassing. Yeah, I got on 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 TV um, with a few people who actually really loved their wine. Uh, the the my parents' house has a whole host of uh, garbage up and down it. And um, anyway, the 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 TV program Salvage Hunters came and did an episode where I tried to flog them some of some of the stuff that uh, was slightly less interesting and I flogged them a little bit but it was it was it was um 
probably not the most exciting episode. But anyway, it was nice. <laughs> Drew, the chap who, the eccentric antiques dealer Drew, who runs it, is really marvellous. And and he was um, very appreciative of the wine we gave him at the end, which hopefully meant we got a bit bit of a better price on the on some of the kit as well. <laughs> so, okay. Um, I mean, that sounds like a lot of fun. But um, you have recently started as head of Fish Pal. And um, actually... This summer, you and I bumped into one another at the House of Brewer en route to our respective weeks of salmon fishing. But Chris was saying to me the other day that he just doesn't get salmon fishing. So can you just explain to him, because I have failed, why he's wrong? (laughs) Well, I can tell you, Chris, unequivocally, that salmon fishing is the finest of of sport. Um, I think that for much of the same reason you like shooting, it's this it can be quite social um it takes you to incredible places uh and it requires skill and practice to do effectively all of those elements of shooting are shared with salmon fishing but the thing about shooting is that uh that that execution of the skill the the killing of the bird the shooting of the bird is a kind of momentary thing that's largely visual and you have all of that in salmon fishing, except for then you also have that hugely tactile experience of battling one so and and trying to land it, which often ends in 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 kind of disaster as well as success. So I think you have all of the elements of shooting and that one more really um in in salmon fishing it's also i mean just the the ecosystem and the majesty i'm a great one uh probably my favorite things to do is is really wild sport and the the majesty of a salmon's journey is insane and so to think that uh something that four years ago um was a small egg lived in this river that you're standing on the banks of and then went on this mammoth journey to greenland hoovering up sand eels and attacking small fish on the way becoming this apex predator and then you're standing there again and it's returning in this this kind of scientifically baffling journey journey and suddenly you intersect with it it's the most ridiculous thing really and um i find it very i I don't know I, i find it very enjoyable, very fun, strangely moving, pretty nostalgic. You can tell I'm tearing up, really, thinking about yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, w- w- what a salmon fishing salesman, hey, George? <laughs> well, yeah, and the, 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 the emotional bit is interesting, and I don't mind saying that I've released fish and then had to have a sit down and a bit of a quiet blub by myself once or twice. Mm. Um, it's it, it, I can't describe it anything like as eloquently as Sam has. And basically what what we're leading up to is chris you need to just go salmon fishing well, well this is it it's it's not that i i think don't get it's the wrong phrase i i, I we've got a hugely passionate fishing office as it were uh hugely passionate to the point where i'm probably one of the most knowledgeable people on fishing who's never been salmon fishing <laughs> uh, just because we talk about it all the time uh, and and obviously all the stuff the, the 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 conservation aspect behind it i i love and you know uh we're always at places where someone serves smoked salmon and we're all up in arms and, oh, you're not, you're not going to eat that, are you? And all that sort of stuff, but for all the right reasons. Um, but yeah, I, I think it actually just comes down to time. I think if it's one of those things you've got to dedicate a bit to and life's short and especially at this stage with baby on the way and all that sort of stuff, you know, I think it's it's something you need to you need to give a bit of time to. And when you chuck a whole load of shooting in there and everything else, 
I think that might be actually one of the one of the reasons behind it. But obviously, I am looking forward to getting out when I do have that time. And the great beauty of salmon fishing is you can do it in the summer when you can't go shooting. Yeah, well, this is so it. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a perfect <laughs> off-season activity. Perfect off-season activity. I mean, it does. I will admit, it does take a bit of time. Normally, places are difficult to get to. It's not like some shoots where you can just kind of get to the edge of the M25 and have a great day. It it does require a bit more. A bit <laughs> not more quite as glamorous, day, really. Um, so so, but yeah, it's a it's a wonderful thing. And but I would I would highly encourage you to try it, um, Chris. You know, you get you do it does need a bit of time. You get out of things what you put into them, but it's uh, it's a pretty majestic thing to do. Yeah, no, I, I definitely will, Sam. I've been invited a couple of times, but it's never quite worked out. And as you say, it's from Kent. It's usually quite a long way away, and that, mm. that's that's one of the problems as well. Uh, but anyway, not an excuse if you loved it, um, Sam. Countryside Alliance, kind of link. You, obviously, you talking about you being a, a, a you know an all-round sportsman kind of a good place for you wasn't it really um tell us about your role what were you up to there at the countryside lines so i absolutely loved uh the countryside lines left very recently only a few few weeks ago really and um it was it was a really enjoyable environment to work but particularly because it was i was managing the alliance's campaign for shooting which is the the campaign really of political lobbying that fights for the future of shooting to protect it uh, and to promote it. And being in a position where I could both communicate to the outside world and to decision makers that the value of shooting, the value of something that I'd grown up in and seen be integral to uh, rural communities and indeed to individuals' lives, their well-being incredibly enhanced by it, was the most amazing privilege. Um, it was it was very wonderful. And on top of that, even though I thought I had a good idea of what shooting was and all of the myriad benefits that it has, working in it, you get to see that so much more. You come into these incredible examples of shoots that are really making a difference. Um, so so that was that was what I did there, and uh, it was it was wonderful. And before you joined Countryside Alliance, had you had uh, experience of that kind of, you mentioned the decision makers, you know, the corridors of power and, you know, that whole political side of things. Had you been, had you had experience of that before or was it all quite new? No, a little, a little bit. Um, so I, before joining the Alliance, I actually worked with DEFRA and shortly after joining DEFRA, thinking that I might make some uh, input into rural policy that I cared about. The, the, I was kind of seconded into a role that had absolutely nothing to do with it. It was completely miserable, incredibly bureaucratic. Uh, and so that was when I thought I better better leave. And how can I make those decisions around rural policy and uh, that I care about and influence them? And that was why I looked at uh, the Alliance in the first place. But I had always um, be, had an interest in politics my parents have been uh, kind of pretty engaged in in politics politics themselves and I'd grown up in a in an atmosphere that was um focused on that my father had actually been an MP so I had had a bit of exposure to it as well uh, but it it I wouldn't say if anyone's listening and thinking about that 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 makes any difference whatsoever people listen to to rigorous and proper arguments particularly if those people are passionate um and and they do make a huge difference so what do you what do you think then is the most the single most important argument that shooting can make to ensure 
the longevity of it? That's an impossible question, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I mean, I think because, because I hate choosing one thing. I like everything all of the time, not just in my What's your go-to bit. then? What's your go-to? <laughs> what's, the, what's the default one? So I think it is. it has to be where I've seen the most impact and change in people's lives is uh, the, the sense of both the community and the conservation. And it's impossible to split those um, because the community, obviously, you have employment and there are all sorts of examples where post offices and schools, not just pubs and hotels, but kind of critical elements of the community are kept open by the employments that's provided by shooting. Uh, but also all of the people who then live in that community, if it's somewhere that's biodiverse and interesting, they have a much higher sense of well-being. We know that from numerous studies about how people interact with nature. So I think that that twin argument of community and conservation um, is, is, is the thing that, to my mind, is so important about shooting and why uh, we must always kind of fight to, to make sure it's maintained and secure. Um, but I would also go back to that terrible man who was shooting with Theodore, um, earlier in the program, I, as George said, the the food part of it is is very much a, a point of shooting. It's the beginning point. We hunted initially as humans uh, for food, and so so you can't strip that out of it either. It's impossible to get one kind of silver bullet that that answers it all. And, and when you talk about conservation, presumably you're talking about net positive impact. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, I don't think, I strongly believe that you shouldn't operate a shoot if um, it's not benefiting the environment more than if it weren't there. So um, the, the, a shoot uh, needs to be a positive impact on the environment around it. And it's not difficult to achieve that, is it? No, absolutely not. Particularly um, it, it, when you look at somewhere like here in Suffolk, the, the, purpose of, or, or so much of the conservation that I see around East Anglia is related to shooting. It's related to uh, cover crops and predator control and woodland management uh, that is enables game to thrive in that setting and be driven in that setting as well. Um, I wouldn't want to say that it could be done just with walked up shooting, for example. Woodland management, we know for driven shooting in particular, benefits the ecology of those woods because it's wider rides, more light, more heterogeneity amongst the, the size of cover within a woodland. So um, that's the, the, all of those things are as a direct result of shooting. And I think it's worth pointing, one of my favourite statistics that, that, I mean, I'm not a big one for, for statistics all of the time, but 28% of the woodland in this entire country was planted for shooting. So, you know, you need to, people need to think about that when they uh, say that land use can be repurposed. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And Sam, one of the, one of the interesting aspects of the, what you might term the politics of shooting is I think there's an assumption that there's a kind of uh, a divide straight down the middle of parliament, that those on the right broadly support shooting and those on the left broadly opposed shooting in your experience is that accurate no i mean i said earlier that people listen to arguments that are rigorous and and kind of well researched that is of course only partly true people do make decisions based on emotion and gut feeling and sentiment all of the time 
So it is frustrating when you present peer-reviewed research to someone and they don't listen to it. That's that's really, really annoying um, and unfathomable when you're presenting facts and you also believe it emotionally to be true. Um, but I think it's definitely not as as straight down the line as you say a really great example of this was the um there was a debate in westminster hall that was in response to a petition by our friends at wild justice and the debate was titled ban driven grouse shooting willful blindness is no longer an option and one of the people who spoke most persuasively was westminster mp from the scottish national party uh for the angus glens a chap called dave dugan and he spoke in support of driven grouse shooting because he had seen his constituents and the communities that were uh otherwise pretty isolated and remote supported and and in a sense you know all of the prosperity really of those those glens came from from grouse shooting and i think pe- most people would quite rightly associate the snp with being uh, fairly ambivalent at best towards country sports so that's a clear example of someone who's listened to the arguments that's fascinating yeah really interesting and i think it's one of those one of those uh things that are seen as true but aren't quite as true as people suppose. No, no, it's not. And I mean, I just, it's not uh, a huge forum, this for kind of preaching at people, really. But I think the um, one thing that we saw that really made a difference, and if you're listening and you uh, have a have a MP who you think is fairly anti-shooting, a thing that has made a huge difference is actually not just writing letters or, or signing petitions, although they do help, but go and see your MP and 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 turn up at one of their um, uh, surgeries and suggest to them that shooting has a value and you're you're the proof you can you're you've seen firsthand in their constituency the jobs that are provided the communities that are uh, brought together the wildlife that is thriving all of those personal contacts that you can have with an MP really makes them sit up and think and if at the same time as playing those those kind of emotionally resonant cards you can say oh and by the way here's some peer-reviewed research uh so much the better very very good advice um my concern is that that all got a bit serious (laughs) yeah it did it did i I know it did i'm sorry have have a swig Um, have a swig of the negroni of the whiskey (laughs) um so i I, i've got a different sort of question for you as we've already (laughs) mentioned um you're an all-rounder you write and talk about shooting fishing stalking and loads of other things i read a great article by you about um crayfish um but what i want you to do is to rank these opportunities in the order in which you'd be most excited to do them so you've got a choice between stalking muntjac in hampshire shooting par- uh, gray partridges in norfolk or salmon fishing on the y which of those is number one they're all quite niche aren't they yeah i went super niche <laughs> definitely shooting grey partridges in norfolk it's the it's the rarest thing of all of those so i'd have that i'd have that at the top um i like all of them because they're 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 all wild and they're all unusual the niche are the better definitely partridges in norfolk would be the one and then assuming the water was good and there were fish in the river i've never had a fish out of the wild though i've tried plenty of times um <laughs> and so i probably spent two weeks of my life at least on the river wife flogging away so i'd do that and uh i love stalking Minjack. they're the most exceptional quarry and the most delicious once upon a time i got all of the um 
a, a cut of meat from all of the six species of deer that live wild in the UK and cooked them all and ate them all at the same time to do a taste test and Munjak was the best. But um, I've, I've had the opportunity to do that uh, a, a bit before. So I would definitely put that as exciting, but less so than the other two. Hmm. I love how you've done all this stuff. Um, just, I didn't want to get it serious again, but I just must ask something that's a bit topical recently based on the news. Um, because you're such a keen conservationist, the, the whole water company situation at the moment, talking about mm. rivers, as you were a second ago, uh, what's your take on this and the vote in Parliament on that? Do you have an, something that you could share? I mean, I think I share the view of pretty much every angler in the country that something absolutely needs to be done to address the worst water quality in Europe. I mean, it's a farce that water companies are able to get away with this, that uh, their executives have paid so much money. And the reason that the House of Commons is given for not adopting this legislation is because it's so expensive. I, I also think that the way in which we protect the environment is by engaging young people in it through things like wild swimming. You know, that's the... Mm. the you get people with the wonderment of the natural world because they're swimming in amongst, you know, ranunculus on a river or something like that. And they see a fish jump and take a damselfly or something, whatever it is. Um, and and not because they're swimming in a kind of chlorine, chlorinated concrete bowl. So I think I think more or less, whatever the cost, I think we need to wait, find a way to fund it. Yeah, and it's a really interesting what was really interesting about this that whole situation for me was that it was as far as i could see and maybe it's a function of social media bubbles but as far as i could see the loudest voices in that argument were the angling organizations and the anglers and in many ways it's sometimes disappointing to me that that when there are conservation issues on dry land that actually maybe we as a shooting community aren't vocal enough uh, in in trying to stand up for those for those wild places, uh, maybe we're always a bit more on the back foot um, than than we might be. I don't know. I I think that uh, one of the things working for the Alliance was that I was I was pretty encouraged actually by the effort that goes in to preserve these um, wild places. I'm sure in many instances it could be communicated better to that to the wider world. Um, but I am, I was quite reassured by the effort and the mobilization, you know, when we had this, um, we used to do these e-lobbies to get people to, uh, write to their MP or whatever it is. Although, as I said, that action is less effective than going to see the MP yourself. Just the response to those showed a kind of willingness from the shooting community to engage in the issues. What I couldn't believe with that particular scenario is I wasn't particularly well versed in it before I started reading up on it. I just couldn't believe the level, the, mm. the amount of pollution being pumped in. Because, you know, when you, if you just talk about it in conversation, it, you would sort of get quite surprised if, if, you, if you heard about the level that was going on. But it's so much greater than that. It's quite unbelievable. And I think I was just almost shocked. I was like, that can't be true. You know, maybe that's not the news. Maybe I've misread it. I was like, no, no, that's true. <laughs> no, it's um, it's totally unfathomable. I was, had exactly the same response, Chris. Exactly the same response. I mean, I, when when it all kind of emerged, I was just took a deep breath and was like, my God, I can't believe it. Mad. Yeah. Talking of wild places, though, where are you off to this season? Where are you heading to? We're, we're only in November now. You must... You, 
I mean, well, your your year, your sporting year goes on forever, isn't it? But uh, where are you off to? I mean, it is good to have something to do um, every every month, really, of the year. Um, so, I, the the most frustratingly about this job is I literally just got a last minute call up, which is my favourite as a kind of bottom feeder. Naturally, the last minute call ups are the, the <laughs> best things, uh, which I sadly can't go to. To go to South Uist, which involves kind of goose flights in the morning, walked up snipe, um, duck flights in the evening, all of that sort of stuff, which is my absolute dream. Um, but the, the, I've got my, on the, on the immediate horizon later this month, I'm off to, um, Northern Ireland, which is fairly exciting to do some driven woodcock <laughs> and some seeker stalking. So that's the, that's the immediate, uh, horizon at the moment. Wow. That sounds awesome. amazing. Yeah, no, it should be it should be pretty good. I actually haven't haven't done that before, so it's a, a first for me. But um, I think one of the things I'm also most excited about is I've just got this incredibly disreputable uh, puppy called Merlin, who's a pointer um, or a wirehead Wiesler, and he's ten months old and just started to point stuff effectively. And so I'm looking forward to at some stage later in the season. Uh, shooting, he's my first dog, shooting something that he's pointed and then hopefully he'll retrieve it. And that will be a great, um, a great moment in my sporting life, I think. That's a big ask, yes. isn't it? Because obviously from a puppy point of view, you're going to be shooting over the top of a pointer. Uh, that's going to be, you know, that's going to be quite an ask as a dog, isn't it? You've got to be really careful about getting that timing wrong in terms of its training. Absolutely. I mean, I think lots of dog trainers have different views. I know nothing about dog training. I'm kind of muddling my way through. Luckily, got a few people on speed dial to, to ask about it. But they um, did suggest that the what you could do probably in the first season towards the end of it is to maybe shoot one or two things uh, like have or not shoot one or two things, but have him do three or four points over the course of a, of a day um and and that uh, over the course of the session and then stop so that he doesn't get too excited so uh, it'll be taking it slowly to begin with but i'm 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 actually probably more excited about it than he is <laughs> i bet i mean i think there's always a you know there's that that cliche of the dog being seeing you come downstairs in your breeks and going bananas because they know what's about to happen but i always reckon it's probably just that the gun in question is better at hiding their excitement and that the gun is really the most excited yes i think i think i think i think we're both we're both equally excited i mean he actually is not so excited so far because he doesn't know it but i can tell that he's going to be unbelievably excited so so sam uh when when we finish off these pods uh we we talk about desert island shooting but i think we need to elongate this feature very slightly with you uh and we need to talk to we need to talk about Desert island shooting, desert island fishing, and desert island stalking. Okay, <laughs> I, want, I want three. <laughs> uh, one last day, so money's no object. One last day, uh, where would it be, and who would you have with you? And I'd start with the fishing, then the stalking, and then the shooting. Well, when when um, I obviously I've listened to this podcast once or twice before. Uh, in fact, as it was entirely compulsory listening for my previous. Um, job at the countryside alliance and it will continue <laughs> to be on my listening list going forward i'd actually thought that the day would have all of those elements in it anyway so uh, so, so it was so you, you were you were going to go after mcnab or something <laughs> well i think i think i pretty much was but one of the things at home we shoot um 
a few times a year and I like I like a day to be kind of busy and full of sport so typically at home we would we would have people oh look Merlin's just arrived to interrupt the show um, <laughs> typically we would have people uh, in a high seat before 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 dawn uh, hoping that they might get a row or a munchak then we would would shoot um during the day and finish with a with a duck flight. So I like that kind of principle of uh, seeing sunrise and seeing sunset and having sport filling all of those hours. Obviously, with a good bit of um, uh, food and drink in between as well. But I think if I was to kind of take that and put it into my last ever day, um, I don't like spending that much time moving around and going into vehicles too. So I also liked your man in Hereford walking between drives. Uh, we do that. We do that a bit here. And uh, I had, you know, thought maybe I could get a, you know, shoot somewhere and then get a private jet to Russia to fish or something. Um, but the, the I axed that as actually being quite stressful and a waste of time. So probably I would go to... I like the reason, though. It's absolutely nothing to do with cost. It's just pure stress and time. That was on top of my agenda. I didn't want to go to Russia. You could be... You could be pursuing sport you know not 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 in a plane somewhere um and so i think there are a few estates where you could do this in in aberdeenshire or in angus glens and i would i would be up somewhere in probably october something like that for and i would be on the hill at sunrise around roaring red stags in the rut um hearing their their roars echo around the glen and so i would i would actually like to do that alone uh not with anyone else i like the challenge of a stalker saying here's a map go go and see what you can do um and being left to it and working it out so i would do that and return hopefully successful uh for breakfast and then i would have a team like surely all of your guests with um with my closest friends who also really get it and enjoy sport and and realize how special it might be to 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 be at this place hopefully a few of my friends have been elsewhere as well and had success talking and we'd shoot uh october driven grouse um packed heavily up in up in probably one of the higher moors in aberdeenshire um no pack smaller than 150 strong wind um, and we wouldn't have to shoot that many you know but it would be it would be challenging difficult late season stuff and then uh, when i woken up this mo- that morning i'd looked out my window and i'd seen the river nearby which i guess geographically he would have to be the north esk or the d or somewhere was in flood um and and just unfishable but clearing nicely and so just dropping as, as the sun starts to set it's now kind of fine down and no one's been through the pools and um <laughs> i'm probably skating a sunray shadow quite fast across the across the tail out glide and there are fish leaping everywhere um trying to chase it but but perhaps not quite committing anyway and then i i, I get a, one of those things that's sadly increasingly rare a fresh silver autumn run salmon so that would be my kind of ultimate mcnab and day it's awesome i love it sam and it's the first time anyone's uh made on on their desert island shooting actually dictated that their their fish will be leaping and their pack of grouse will be in no less than 150 i think that's <laughs> It's well, a, you know, a, if it's if it's your last day sport, you better be. Um, you could decide. You, know, it's, you better it's good. get what you want. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I think of all the of all the desert island shootings to date, I reckon 
that's probably up there with my favorites. Um, I'm not a stalker, as, as people who've been listening will know, but um, it's something I'm keen to get into. But just the, yeah, that just sounds epic. Just sounds so fun, so much fun. It would be a, a pretty memorable day, I think. Yeah. Indeed. Well, Sam, thank you ever so much for joining us. Um, I know you're very busy. You've been traveling a lot in the last few days, so it's great that you're able to to join us. Um, and it's exciting to be back on the air, isn't it, Chris? Um, indeed. Indeed. It's been great fun. I can't think of anybody I'd rather have had on for the first episode of the series. So, yeah, brilliant having you on, Sam. Thanks. Well, thank you for having me. Very, very much a privilege. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. Right. So before we go, as per usual, there is one final reminder that you can get your hands on a pair of the very exclusive Guns on Pegs podcast shooting sock garters by sending us your shooting dilemmas for us to resolve or by getting in touch to let us know where you've been listening or by sending us your unpopular opinions. Just send us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com. If you already have your garters and you would like to come to our order of the garter shoot day at Stockton in Wiltshire on the 31st of January next year, Drop us an email, again, pod at gunsonpegs.com. And if you are in the first, however many it is, I can't quite remember, uh, then we will look forward to seeing you there. We will be back in a, an unspecified number of weeks, depending on at what point Chris's new arrival deigns to turn up. <laughs> uh, but until then, thanks very much for listening and goodbye. Spot on. <laughs>